prophecy. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm read uh, passages out of mostly Luke, and then we're going to tr- Old Testament passage that Jesus is either quoting or fulfilling. All right. So you say, well, how does that how does that have to do with Daniel? We're going to tie that all together here in a couple minutes. But what I want you to understand is the most amazing things about Christmas is not the gifts or the food or so many of the other things, the lights, the travel. One of the most amazing things about Christmas is all the prophecy that you and I get to go over every year that our Savior has come and fulfilled. Born in Bethlehem, right? Like all these things we talk of constantly, they're not plucked out of thin air, but out of the Old Testament. They are prophecies that Jesus is checking those boxes so that when Messiah shows up, they would know who they were looking for. Okay? So parents, as we, as we, we dive into something today, I understand it's a little deeper than the kids. What I want you to take them into in the next couple months is the idea of prophecy. The Old Testament makes promises that are going to happen and Jesus fulfills them. Check Check, 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 check. Daniel, Daniel gets as detailed as to give us a time frame. That's a little bit of what, what we talked about last week. Go with me to Daniel chapter 9 just for a minute. We're going to read through the passage. And then we're going to go through a couple slides that were up from last week. I want you to see the dates. It's really hard to work through last week's sermon without being able to point to something and show you what was really going on, okay? Daniel chapter 9, verse 20. While I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, come to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice, and he made understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. The first part of this, today, the only thing I want to impress upon you again, you are dearly loved. You are dearly loved loved. Daniel was dearly loved. The moment he started to speak, the moment he uttered mercy, the call was made and the angel was dispatched to deliver immediately. And in the midst of all of this, he's looking at Daniel and saying, you are greatly loved. Listen, friends, I need you to understand that's not a trite statement. That's not a a, a flyby. That's not flyover country for the Christian. That is, you land, you park, and you stay a while. Because if you and I, my fear was drowned in perfect what? You just sung it like ten times. It's a glorious statement. My fear was drowned in perfect love. What drowns my fear? Love. The love of God. Some people have no other love from anybody else in this world. Do you understand me? This is 2022, am I in the right year? Some people that your kids go to school with, some people you work with, they have zero people in their life that love them. Do you understand that? Shake your head yes. Zero. Not that love them well. Not that love them the way they should. Why are people so apprehensive? Why are they so fearful? So many in our culture have never experienced their fear 
being drowned in perfect love. The fastest way that you and I can make it fit is in a marriage relationship. If your marriage is good and the love is deep, there's nothing to fear. you got a good marriage and it's been that way for years and it's tested and it's tried, right? Go to sleep worried about what your spouse is going to do. Go to sleep worried about the business trip that they have to take. You don't go to sleep worried about what's on their phone. You rest easy. Because all of those fears that the world has to experience, you and I don't have to. They were drowned in perfect love. Not perfect people. Perfect love. We mess up. We repent. We apologize. But I need you to understand the world doesn't understand that kind of security. You and I are charged to give it. The next place you and I can show it is parent-child. What do your children fear? Listen, if the greatest, if the biggest fear in their life is disappointing you, you've done it right. Right? Would that not be a fear you and I should have for God the Father? The only thing I don't want to do is disappoint Him. Why? Because any other mess up I can come in and I can say, man, I've screwed up. And they can say, okay, let's fix it. Now there's going to be consequences because we're developing character. Right? There's going to be consequences, but... I'm not kicking them out. I'm not hating them. I'm not pummeling them with their mess up after they've repented again and again and again. I'm not bringing up how they messed up. I'm not bringing up how I fixed their problem. Right? I am just loving them. And that fear is gone. You, listen, you and, I, you and I have got to understand this is not a fly-by sentence anymore. we got to stop. you got to park you got to unpack it. Every time you hear it, you got to think about it because you and I need to show the world what that kind of love is like because so many people don't get to experience it. And that kind of life that doesn't experience that kind of love is fearful of everything, afraid of the next day, afraid of the next five minutes, afraid to get close to people. Friends, they need what you and I have to offer. Read, read with me the next part. So... The message is being delivered. Daniel, here's the message. Seventy weeks are, degree, are decreed about your people and your holy. Who's the prophecy about? The nation of Israel, right? The city of Jerusalem and the temple of God. Understand because it will erase some confusion. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Friends, in verse 24, I want you to stop there. And if you mark in your Bible or you mark on your, I want you to mark that verse. Because the reason why I want you to do it is that's the only hope-filled thing that's coming. Listen to me very carefully. Listen to me very carefully. The next piece of this passage is hard. Now, I want to, sh- I want to share it to you like this this morning. The rest of your life, there's a hope and a promise of things to Don't cash it in. Don't quit. Don't let go. Don't don't give Don't give in to your fear. Dig yours in and do the right thing. Why? Because they're that were made and they will be fulfilled. But the but the angel is going to tell us to this story and it's not good. So if he's 24, he's going to be in trouble. Not an anchor floating around, just being pummeled by things that are to come, or within himself, his own brokenness, his own fear, his own frustrations. We've already talked on repeat. What he gets access to see makes him physically ill. 
His physical can't deal with the spiritual picture God has him. And this moment will be no different. If you and I forget the idea that the hope is to come, that the glory is to come, the fixing to come, the healing is to come, you and I will wake up every day and we'll just be at the whim of what goes on next. A lot of times, it's not good. Turn the news on. Listen to your children talk about their day. Listen to your children talk about their friends. Listen to your friends talk of friends. It's like, man, this is a lot, Lord. It is if you don't have a hope like that. So the angel's looking at Daniel and saying, listen, this stuff has to take place so that this can happen. What's going to happen? Seventy weeks are decreed to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin. Somebody say amen. I'm going to pull that Pentecostal preacher out right now. I'm going to demand you do some stuff. That is good news. Instead of thinking, boy, I can't wait till they put a, a stop to someone else's sin. I can't wait till they stop the sin in D.C. I can't wait till they stop that sin in Charleston. No. Putting an end to this sin. Making me like Jesus. Releasing me from the worst person I have access to constantly. Releasing me from my own worst enemy. Me. That's sin flesh that has not been crucified completely, destroyed completely. He wakes up every morning, and i got to crucify him again. Put him back on the cross and nail him there. Every morning. What else is going to happen? He's going to atone for iniquity. So now I'm not even, I'm righteous. My iniquity has been atoned for. My debt has been paid. I am free to bring in everlasting righteousness. Jesus comes and sits on the throne. And it's not a democracy. It's not even a glorious democratic republic. It is a benevolent dictatorship. And it will be the greatest one you and I have ever seen. To seal both vision and profit, these things will be true. And to anoint a most holy place. These are all the things that are going down. And they're going to come about after the chaos of what's next. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, uh, again with squares and moats outside, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city. People of the prince who is to come. Second prince, wicked, evil. The people of that prince are the Roman Empire. Okay? So we got a Messiah, a prince, an anointed one. And then you've got another one that is to come. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate. The decreed end is poured out on the desolator. That's a lot of stuff going on right there. All that stuff is bad. The anointed one comes, the Messiah comes, and he has come to all that stuff in verse 24. But what's going on around the world is chaotic, frustrating, hard to deal with. And Daniel was seeing it all play out. So 9 to 23, one of the greatest passages in Scripture. Daniel's prayers are answered, right? What's the trigger, what's the trigger to God answering your prayer? is mercy. Call for mercy. Call for grace. Show yourself humble and needy. And God is drawn to that. 
So much of God is shared with the world. They see his power. They see his strength. They see portions of his beauty. They see his intelligence. A person, any person with a microscope sees the intelligence of God. And any person with a telescope sees the intelligence of God. And the power and the beauty and the majesty. You and I as believers get to experience his mercy. You and I get to experience his mercy. That first cry for help elicits the ears of God to take action on us. Salvation is a cry for mercy. Salvation is a cry for forgiveness. The rest of your Christian life looks the same way. Calling out for mercy from God the Father draws him to you. It shows your need. He heard their cry as one of the most terrifying passages in Scripture for the people doing the afflicting. For those that are hurt, God hears their cry. God acts. He destroyed the nation of Egypt with the plagues. Why? Because he heard the cry of the nation of Israel. God answered and God released. God freed them. Verses 24 to 27. What's the answer to the vision Daniel has gotten? He's going to give him. He's going to 70 weeks, 77s, a length of time that Daniel was familiar with. Why the 70 years of captivity? Because they had wasted, they had dishonored 70 years. 490 years, the nation of Israel did not do what God told them to do. Rest the land. Show your faith in me. Take your hands off the plow. Land provide for you what I am going to give you. And the nation of Israel said, nope, every seventh year we're going to do it anyway. We're going to run our economics the way it seems to make sense. And so for 490 years, they missed 70 Sabbath years. They told God 70 times, we don't trust you. We're not going to listen. We have a better plan than you do, God. We'll take care of it. And so because of that, God told them, the land is going to get years of rest. I'm going to take you out of it to do it. That's the Babylonian captivity. That's why they were taken over and overrun by Nebuchadnezzar and brought out of the land and dispersed all over the world. Why? Because 70 times they told God, we can do it better than you. Now, friends, we need to be careful because you and I do this every day in economics. Right? The world says two plus two is four. The world says work sure make some overtime, pad your stats, pad your bank account, take care of your needs. All this stuff feels really good. And then all of a sudden you and I wake up one day and we figure out we've missed time with family, time with children, time in church. We're not growing spiritually like we should. Listen, friends, you and I do this all the time. We tell God we don't trust him by the way we run our economics. And the Lord doesn't like that. It's one of the reasons why so many of us are just so chaotic inside right now because every day we have fear and it's not been drowned out with perfect love. We're afraid of the future. We're afraid of our 401K. We're afraid that the bank account's going to get too low. We're afraid of this. We're afraid of that. And so we work overtime instead of stepping into our prayer closet and saying, God, you made promises. I need you to keep them. Help me to keep my life straight. Help me to keep my priorities right. And let me lean into the life you're given and accept it and love it and enjoy it. We've got to be careful because we tell the Lord the same thing every day. To finish the transgression, what's the transgression that's going to be fit, finished? Is the idea that it, God's temple doesn't have God's presence. God's temple's there. God's presence is not. What else? God's house is under foreign control. It's not under control of the people that he gave it to. And finally, it's a house of prayer without any prayer. 
without any power, without any presence of God. These are the things that are going to be wiped away. This is the finish of the transgression. Verse 24 says he's going to end these things. He's going to restore. He's going to make perfect. He's going to fulfill. So here's where we get to 25. So the, the angel says, look for this and then know this is coming. Seventy weeks has been decreed. Seventy sevens. Know therefore, watch for this and know this is coming. From the going out of the re, to rebuild Jerusalem, the clock starts ticking. Know therefore and understand that from the going word to restore and build Jerusalem, right? There's going to be a time that the anointed one has come. He's giving us a time frame to look at. So what are those dates? Well, in 538, Daniel lives to see the first one. 538, what happens? Cyrus the Great says, go rebuild the temple. That's pretty cool. Secular king. God has his heart. Just like Nebuchadnezzar. Just like others. So God says, let my people go. And Cyrus the Great, instead of being an idiot like Pharaoh... Did what? <laughs> Let the people go. And one of the most amazing things is to read about the history of that kingdom. You know how that kingdom stayed so big for so long? It let other people go back to their homeland. So God had already built into this king the fulfillment of this prophecy even as they were taking over ruling and reigning. So Cyrus the Great in 538 says, go rebuild the temple. That's Ezra 1. Darius the Mede does it too. Ezra and, and Zerubbabel in 517 B.C., go rebuild the temple. That's Ezra 6. Listen, Daniel's seeing this stuff before it happens. Do you understand? Daniel is seeing this stuff before it happens, and then it starts to happen. Artaxerxes in, uh, in Ezra uh, tells Ezra 458 B.C., go rebuild the temple. That's Ezra 7. And finally, Artaxerxes tells Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter, the first couple of chapters of Nehemiah are a fantastic read. Nehemiah is a Jew that's heartbroken. Artaxerxes sees him and says, what's going on? What's wrong? If you brought sadness into the king's palace, what usually happened to you? Right? Don't mess the mood up. Don't mess up the mojo. Right? It's over. You're done. Nehemiah was such a good servant that he could walk in. The king saw him and said, well, and Nehemiah says, man, how can I rejoice? How can I rejoice? My city is left with no... Those that are related to me are just lambs ready for the slaughter. And Artaxerxes says, go, rebuild, here's what you need to do it. What date was that date attached to that? March 14th, 445 B.C. Artaxerxes sends forth the decree to rebuild not the temple, but the what? City. Rebuild the city. So here's where the numbers get weird. Here's our counting. Seven sevens to rebuild Jerusalem is 49 years. From 444 to 395 B.C. After that, there are 62 sevens left. Right? They're building the city. What's available or what is there when Jesus shows up on the scene? The city. What is there shortly? What is not there shortly thereafter? The city or the temple. Rome comes through in 70 A.D. and wipes it off the map. No stone on a stone. So we got a time frame here that the Messiah has to show up. The temple has to be there. He has to go in and cleanse the temple. There are prophecies that have to be fulfilled in the time frame that we're looking at that Daniel sees moving forward. And what is that? It is 69 years 
right? 69 weeks, which would be 69 times 7, which I think is 483 years from the rebuilding of the city. 400, right? And 83 years until not Messiah is born, but Messiah is what? Cut off. It's amazing. Next slide, please. This is amazing. 25 and 26, the Messiah is revealed and then the Messiah is cut off. Verse 25's anointed one is verse 26's reviled one. He is shown, he is cut off. Two sevens and cut off with nothing to show. Jesus died on a cross with nothing of earthly wealth. No kingdom, no nothing. No clothes, no dignity, no help. Guy that spent 30 years loving people well, the last three healing, helping, holding hands, loving people. He dies on a cross as an enemy of the state, stripped naked, beaten, crucified. The Messiah is revealed. Shortly thereafter, he is cut off. And just talking about rounding numbers, right, 458 to 445 B.C., when those decrees are being made, uh, 483 years would put you at, the, at 25 to 38 A.D. There's a, just a little window here because I'm not as smart as Sir Robert Anderson who calculated it down to the day-ish, right? Accounting for calendar differences, like we have a Julian calendar, they have a Jewish calendar. Julian calendar is 365 days, Jewish calendar is 360 days, okay? The details are... If Messiah didn't pull was destroyed, there was no Messiah. And you and I are here wasting our time. Because your sins haven't forgive, been forgiven, and I can guarantee you none of us have done enough to earn our way to heaven. But if Messiah did show up, if he was cut off, if the timing is correct and history tells us <laughs> so many things that we can't deny, man, you and I are in good shape. The Holy Spirit was giving people access to things they shouldn't have known. Sir Robert Anderson calculated the date from decree to messianic revelation as 107,880 days. And then this guy was like the, uh, this is the same detective that cracked um, Jack the Ripper case. So, smidge smart, Right? From March 14, 45 B.C. to April 6, 32 A.D. What date is that? Right on the verge. Technically, I think that would be Palm Sunday. Because when is Messiah revealed? When does Jesus tell the world who he is? Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Your anointed one, your Messiah comes in. Your king comes in humble on a donkey. The foal of a donkey. So Jesus that day says, hey, go get the donkey. <laughs> it's time to tell everybody who I am. And that sets the stage for the last week of his life. So he is revealed, and then six days later, five days later, he is what? Cut off. Cut off. Rebuild the city and worship the king. 
9, 26, and 27, the idea again is, is this is based around Jerusalem, right? A.D. 70 is a partial fulfillment. What, what happens in this passage is Rome comes in and it destroys the city. There are other things in this that haven't been fulfilled yet. So it's telling us there is a break in the prophecy because prophecy deals with the nation of Israel, not the church. So there's 69 weeks and then there's a seventh week. 69 weeks deal with the Jewish people. And the seventh, the, the seventh week will deal with the Jewish people. But there's a pause in the middle of this, in this cutting off of the Messiah. There's a time frame when the church is being born. And you and I are a part of that. I'm going to show you how Jesus uh, deals with that in just a minute. A.D. 70 is a partial fulfillment. A.D. 167, uh, we talked about Antiochus Epiphanes, right? God incarnate. This Roman individual that come in, and what did he do to the nation of Israel? He destroyed the temple by desolating the Holy of Holies. He went in, he slew a pig, put in a picture, uh, uh, an idol of Zeus, and destroyed, took over the nation of Israel. You get a picture of what the Antichrist is going to be like by looking at that guy, because he was absolutely insane. Verse 27, the 70th week is known as what we would call the tribulation. Peace for half the week, three and a half years, and then destruction and desolation for the last three and a half years. But why? Because of verse 24. This 70 weeks for a glorious eternity. So as I finish, this is the last slide this morning. I'm going to read a couple passages to you. I want to show you how Jesus interacted with this idea in his life, okay? The first one. What we got? Where we at? Man, we're doing good. Y'all are doing good. You kids are doing awesome. I owe you. Oh, you treat. You're doing fantastic. Are you ready? Now, here's the part I want you to take home. Here's the part I want you to understand. How does Jesus see his ministry when he is here? Was he a failure? Absolutely not. I think he saw it in two parts. Was he delivering judgment that time around? Was he to be set up as a king to rule? No. If he would have been set up as a king to rule, would the nation of Israel have leaned in to his kingship? You better believe it. Some of them would have drugged But if he would have thrown off Roman rule, they would have leaned in and loved him and worshipped him. The problem was, what was the nation of Israel's number one problem? Was it within them or outside of them? Nobody wants to be told they're a sinner and they need a savior. And the nation of Israel wasn't having it. Why? Because they were sons and daughters of Abraham. You're crazy. We're the righteous ones. They're the wicked ones. And so because Jesus did not operate that way, he is crucified and actually completes the job. Look at Luke chapter 4 with me. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. How did Jesus see his mission? In Luke chapter 4, we're going to read this part. This is right after the temptation. Right after Jesus hands the devil a big L. A big one. Right? The temptation. Is that the right way, Jake? Right? Jesus hands him one. Nobody else has ever been able to do it. Adam and Eve couldn't do it in the garden. They didn't even have a sin nature. Do you understand that little tidbit of theological issue? They didn't even have a sin nature, and they couldn't outfox the enemy. Jesus comes, just finishes. Chapter 4, what happens next? Verse 16, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, 
And as was his custom, he went to synagogue on Sabbath day and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me liberty to the captives and recovering sight to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's a nice place to stop, isn't it? There's more to the passage. We'll get there in just a minute. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today what? Woo, has been what? Isaiah 1 is where we would find that. He reads through the first four and a half verses and stops. The very next line says, The day of vengeance of our Lord. See, Jesus reads out of that scroll, and they can't comprehend the sacrificial lamb portion of this ministry that he is getting ready to pour out. What is his goal there? To preach to the poor. He's going to teach. He's going to show off some things. He's going to, people are going to live in awe. And then what happens in the rest of that passage? I'm not going to read it for time's sake. If you keep reading in Luke, guess what happens? He keeps teaching, and eventually they go from awe, like that's awesome, to you're out of here. It was a very fast transition. Because once he looked at them and said, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, things get real serious real fast. You can read the words of God, but when you stand up and proclaim them or you call authority over them, things get serious real fast. That's why you and I as Christians today have access to do that, but you and I better be lining up with scripture. Your authority comes from the word of God. It doesn't come like Jesus out of who he was. He was fulfilling scripture. He was opening up things to them. Why? Because he was the author of it. Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 4 say this. The spirit of the Lord uh, God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Man, that sounds like to proclaim liberty to the captives. Man, that sounds like a good God. The opening of the prison to those who are bound. Verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus stopped short of saying that line. Why? Because it wasn't parching yet. 69 weeks that we see being cut off, the 70th week that we read about, there is a transition here from Jesus up the brokenhearted to the day of the vengeance of our God. That is the warning you and I are given to everyone with the gospel. That day is coming. If we die and we meet him in our sin, we will meet him judgment in vengeance, in righteousness. But if we, in the grace and salvation of Jesus Christ and the life that he lived, that he bound up our broken heart, that he forgave our sin, that he is removing from us that wickedness, sanctification, looking more like him, then we meet God in grace and mercy as a son or a daughter, not as an adversary. In Luke chapter 7, he would get another question. Luke chapter 7, verse 18, John the Baptist is in prison. His life is getting ready to end. And while he's sorting through the most important things in his life, he has one more question to the one he hopes can answer it. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? This was John, the baby in the womb that leapt for joy, and Mary walked in and was pregnant with Jesus. This is that John the Baptist. 
This is the person that Jesus talks about like there's never been a man better. Hey, he's experiencing some doubt here. He's looking for some clarification. That's good news for me and you. Even John the Baptist can say, mm, I, need, I, got a, I need a little time here. I'm struggling. I'm hurting. He's in prison. He's getting ready to die. You want to know why? Because he stood up against bad leadership <laughs> and said, you're sinning against the God of the universe, and they didn't like that. Sounds familiar, don't it? 2000 history, fastly coming to our place of being. Born a boy, you're probably still a boy. Off to prison, right? Get ready. Get ready. The question of John's life is answered by Jesus by pointing to what? Two scriptures. Isaiah 35, right? Look at what happens in the rest of this passage. Uh, in that hour, he healed many, okay? People, diseases, plagues, and he answered them and says, Go to John the Baptist, what? Tell him this. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus answers questions with Scripture because he wants people to understand, I'm the promised one. John the Baptist knows Scripture. His disciples come to Jesus and say, listen, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one we've been waiting for? Are you the one that was promised? And instead of Jesus saying, yeah, we're good, just tell him, I'll see him later. Jesus points to Scripture. Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 8. Isaiah 8 is terrifying because it says God will be a stumbling stone to those. So what does Jesus say? Blessed are the ones that what? Don't stumble over my teachings. John has questions. Jesus has prophetic answers. These things were known to come, and Jesus is unfolding that for people. What happens in Luke 19? Luke 19 is the triumphal entry. It is Palm Sunday. And when he said these things, he went on ahead, going to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, out, uh, that is that he set two disciples, saying, Go in front of you, where, uh, where on entering you will find a colt tied up, on which no one has ever sat. That's important. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying, you shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were, uh, were sent away found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And he said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat, uh, Jesus sat on and he rode along. They spread the cloaks on the road and he was drawing near. Already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of people began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice uh, for all the mighty works that he had, uh, they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And the Pharisees in the crowd said to the teacher, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he said, Woo, wake up. If I tell them to stop, there's going to be an earthquake. The rocks are going to cry out if I tell them to stop. Totally explicit. Jesus walks in. Zechariah 9.9 is the prophecy he is fulfilling. Riding in as the humble king. And then when they're praising him as being God, the Pharisees come up and say, you need to tell your people to repent. This is, this is evil. This is not right. And Jesus says, if not, you're going to see Psalm 114, 148, 150, and Isaiah 5 all fulfilled right here, right now. If they stop, the earth is going to move. The earth is going to sing. Messiah has come. And finally, in Matthew 27, 
Verse 46, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is he crying out right there? What is he crying out? If we were Jewish people of that time, you know what we would know? He's yelling, Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Starts off, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then it unties the whole crucifixion. They've surrounded me. They've pierced me. They've taken my clothes and gambled them away. God, why have you forsaken me? Of Psalm 22 is being cried out by the God of the universe. Psalm 23 would be what? There's the hill of Calvary. I love this. Pastor Don told it to us. I'm going to tell it to you because it's one of the coolest things I've ever seen in Scripture. Psalm Psalm 22 is the hill of Calvary. Psalm 23 is valley of shadow of death. And I love this. You need to have a valley to what? Psalm 24 is the hill of glory. Who can ascend to the kingdom of God? Messiah, anointed one. As we finish today, Jesus says this in Matthew 28. What does he go out of and into? He goes out of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he goes into as he's been resurrected and he's getting ready to leave this earth. While they're all watching, Jesus came and said to them, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go. Therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What is he doing now? He's giving them a mission. He has fulfilled everything that has been required up to that moment. And we're going to enter this church age, and we're going to wait for the last seven years. Whenever that happens, nobody knows. You and I are to be prepared. A ready person never has to get Somebody say ready. As they come this morning to play, I want you to think about that. All authority of heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, all the nations, baptizing them, right? Preaching the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. What does he say for that? There's bookends to the Great Commission. He has the authority. That's the front end. If I was looking over here, the front end, right? The front end is he has authority. What's the back end? The one with the authority will never leave us. Friends, Jesus fulfills what Daniel sees. He fulfills the, the glory and the goodness and the forgiveness and the binding of the broken heart. He fulfills all of that. What's next is vengeance and judgment. You and I are here to show people what it's like to be loved by the God of the universe and to show them what it's like to experience some of his love. When they interact with you, are they knowing it? Are they experiencing it? Are they seeing it? Children, you need to understand, some of you in middle school and high school, what would your testimony be at the school you go to? Do the kids around you experience Jesus? Do they experience love and care? Or do they experience the same kind of ridicule and baloney the rest of the world pours out? Because if you're not showing them something different, you're going to be held accountable to that. You've been taught the truth. And the Lord wants you living it wherever you're at. At as young as age as you can understand it, you and I need to be living that truth. When people see us, they need to experience what it's like to run into the Lord of the... Not perfect, but a lot different than this world has to offer. Would you stand this morning?